This is Agamemnon, my husband, but a corpse. The work of my right hand here, a just architect. This is how things are. Clytemnestra has been a popular figure in Greek myth from Homer to the present day, featuring in plays by all three great tragedians, and appearing more recently in opera, ballet, and even a spaghetti western adaptation. However, it is her depiction in Aeschylus Oresteia that dominates the tradition, a trilogy dramatising brutal revenge killings within the cursed house of Atreus. Sister of Helen of Troy, Clytemnestra kills her husband Agamemnon on his return from the Trojan War with her lover Aegisthus, his cousin only to be later murdered herself by her son Orestes. I'm Alice Harbert, and joining me today on In Our Spare Time are Lily Aranovich, my tutorial partner and fellow Literary Humaniores finalist at Corpus Christi College, and Emily Clifford, a master's student in Greek also at Corpus, who is currently focusing her research on themes of art and vision in Aeschylus' tragedies. I thought it would be great if we could start by just looking at the background to the Oresteia story. Emily, perhaps you could fill us in on that. Well, I suppose that immediately before um, the play is set, we've had 10 years of war at Troy. The city of Troy has been besieged by the Greeks and then eventually um, beaten by the Greeks, which is something we discover in the first scene of the play. Mm. Um, But before that, before Agamemnon, the the husband of Clytemnestra, set out for Troy, he had sacrificed um, Iphigenia, his daughter and her daughter, so that they could get the winds that the army needed to get to Troy. So it's something that's obviously burning in her mind. I see. And um, what are the deviant traditions about the sacrifice of Iphigenia? One interesting uh, variant of the story is that it's not entirely clear whether or not the daughter was actually sacrificed. So I think what we need to believe for um the Agamemnon is that Clytemnestra believes that her daughter has actually been killed. But there is a variant version where the goddess Artemis sort of steps in at the last minute and whisks her away to Taurus um, and replaces her with a with a sacrificial animal of some sort. So, full of anger at the death of her daughter Iphigenia, Clytemnestra is waiting for how long for her husband to come back from Troy? For ten years. Ten years. A long time. And so is the, when does the play begin? Is, does it begin with him walking through the door? Or what, what sort of a scene are we set at the start? Um, that's an interesting question because he has been away for ten years. But when the play begins, uh, the palace gets word that the war's over and by, the, by noon he's home. So there's a, there's a kind of uh, dramatic licence sort of taking place in terms of the timing. But no, he doesn't appear and he doesn't speak until halfway through the play. The first half is conversations between heralds who are announcing his entrance, as is, I think, traditional when someone comes back from somewhere. So how does Clytemnestra behave in that first part of the play? Do you think we're invited to feel sympathy for her position? I think she's actually already proving to be pretty devious because she doesn't reveal rage or anger in front of So what you have, who you have on the stage when she enters are the chorus Um, of old men who haven't been able to go to war Um, and then later the herald and she doesn't at least in my view she doesn't really reveal her anger um, her bitterness um, at least openly Um, maybe she does through sort of double meanings but instead she appears to be a sort of delighted wife who's discovered that Troy has fallen I suppose we we her exultation at the victory and the, on the, the fact that her husband is going to come home, actually, we, we would know through dramatic irony, is actually for 
very different reason to the one that the chorus interpret. Yeah, and did you think we get a sense of that through the way the chorus responds to her behaviour? I mean, she and the chorus enjoy quite a a combative relationship. Um, and although she doesn't speak openly about her anger against Agamemnon, nor does she talk about Iphigenia in any detail, her reaction to the chorus's um, questions to her is incredibly hostile. Um, they they say to her, you know, is it some rumour that's got you so excited about about the end of the war? And she says, what do you take me for a child? She isn't so much hostile to Agamemnon, but by adopting this male position earlier on in the play as the ruler and as in charge of the chorus, she is setting herself up to be his his rival and oh, not his wife. Struggle. Yeah. Mm. And how is that compounded by her relationship with Aegisthus? I'd say it's complicated by her relationship with Aegisthus because... Mm. She's set up, as Lily was saying, she's set up sort of from the very start as um, a powerful figure and um, essentially the steward of, of the palace who later will come to be rivaling um, her husband, Agamemnon. And that kind of runs right through until almost the end of the play when she reveals that she has this lover, Aegisthus, who is uh, controversially the cousin of her husband anyway. Um, and then he comes on and claims the credit and sort of takes takes back the reins or appears to take back the reins. So it's it's actually complicated, I think, rather than compounded. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to look at how her actions as a woman might be different to what you might expect for the position of Greek women at that time. I mean, we have no records of any Greek women in leadership roles, for example. I think that her that Clytemnestra's role as the king in this speaks to a wider kind of war anxiety. So at the time that this was written, um, Athens was constantly skirmishing. There were, or, or taking part in big wars, and Aeschylus has, has uh, also written the play The Persians, which is mm. about the war with the Persians. So Aeschylus and his audience are concerned about what happens when people come home from war. How are they re- rehabilitated? Like Persia, I suppose, mm. has a return from war. And also a queenly narrator, I believe. Yeah. So having a woman in charge is a symptom of of the absence of, of order. It's a type of chaos. We see it again in the Odyssey where you have mm. where Penelope's not in charge, but the masculine role is being fulfilled by Telemachus, who is ill equipped, and all these suitors who mm. are doing a terrible job. Um so again you have this this chaos sort of vacuum of male power which exactly. is being squabbled over rather than sort of settled. Yeah. Mm. And I think in this case um, it's been resolved in having the wrong gender in charge. I suppose the next question would be how that interacts with her role as a mother, you know, as a leader and a mother. Do you think that the two come into conflict? I think they, I think they come into conflict just within the context of Greek society because mm. a mother... Um, as a woman was essentially expected to stay uh, indoors um, to I guess, obey her husband, um, not to um, ideally not to speak more than she should. And so in a leadership role, um, Clytemestra in coming out of the palace and announcing um, what the, the fire beacons have, have told her, which is that Troy has fallen, to even conversing with the chorus in the very first place, 
Um, and that, thereby setting herself up as a leader, is already transgressing what you'd expect from a, a woman and as a mother. Yes, this this important link between Clytemnestra and control over meaning. So, as Lily said, the play actually opens with um, a, a messenger noticing that a fire has been lit. Now, what is Clytemnestra's investment in this fire? They're hill beacons. So, um, how does that work? They will. Uh, form a chain when one beacon sees a fire in the distance they'll light their own fire and it will continue and here until Argos um now her her investment in that is incredibly ambiguous the watchman who first notices the fire is acutely aware of that he knows that this both means that Agamemnon is coming home to his wife which is traditionally a happy thing and he also knows that that it's going to be a very complicated reunion so complicated, in fact, that he, he refuses to speculate about what he thinks will happen for fear that if he he talks about his fears, that, that, that they're more likely to come true. Um, so I think from the offset, from the first sight we have of this, this fire, which is very vividly um, described by the Watchmen, we already don't know. Whether it portends good or bad. Yeah. And I suppose that's complicated by a speech later on Clytemnestra gives, detailing the precise path of the beacon, which I personally find difficult to interpret because it just gives the track and not, not a gloss on that track. How do you read that? I suppose to, to a certain extent I'd, I'd perhaps interpreted it more as shocking that she would have such a detailed knowledge of the procedure for the fire, which perhaps... Um, in a positive light, would show the, her stewardship, the, the extent to which she, she is aware of the workings of the state. But given that she is a woman, given that we know that she's got these plans for Agamemnon when he returns, it's quite alarming that she knows this much, and either she knows too much um, about the state as mm. a woman, or she's inventing it, which would fit, I suppose, with the theme of deception. Yes, so deception and language are very closely intertwined in this play, I believe. Perhaps you you could talk a little bit more about how that functions with ambiguous symbols, like the beacon fire, I suppose, which could portend either. The chorus talks a lot about prophecies, and Cassandra, who we haven't talked about yet, but Mm. is, is brought to Argos by Agamemnon as a sort of war bride, um, also is, um, uh, only speaks in prophecy, to be honest. And um, so she's been brought back from Troy. Is she's it, been brought back from Troy. Yeah, she's yeah. one of Priam's daughters. Okay, um, yeah. And uh, she is killed alongside Agamemnon. Um, and she's, as a prophet, acutely aware that it's going to happen, which is interesting. The prophecy that we associate most with um, the Agamemnon is the one of the the pregnant hair being being torn apart. Um, with it, her young still sort of warm in her belly. It's, oh, um, dear. It's creepy, for yeah. sure. I think there, again, it's ambiguous. It could be in the context that the chorus of the, of the choral ode, the young could be all of those men who have died at Troy. The young could be Iphigenia. Um, people dying before their generation is due to die. Mm. Um, I mean, I think, like the like how we call the the generation of World War Two, the lost generation. Yes. Um, it's the lost generation that that they're talking about. And I'm not sure whether it's so much ambiguous as, as polyvalent. Polyvalent. Well, I suppose there's, if the lost generation is the hare's brood, that also 
foreshadows perhaps the eventual murder of Clytemnestra herself, would you say? Yes, by her, by her children. Um, it's a perversion of the order, and that's exactly why we end up in the last play having to resort to a new kind of justice to sort out whether or not Orestes has is a criminal. Um, and that that's sort of the inauguration of the Athenian court system because it is so complicated, um, the situation they find themselves in, that they, they have to create a new way of sorting it out. So, yeah. So that's this is based on something we haven't really talked about yet, which is the curse of the house of Atreus. So perhaps, Emmy, could you take us through that a little bit? Um, yes, so the curse of the house of Atreus. So initially we have Tantalus, um, who had served up um, his own son Pelops to the gods, I think, to try and trick to trick Zeus, and I think um, only one of the gods had actually fallen for it and eaten the shoulder of Pelops, and that was Demeter because she was so upset that her own daughter had been um, seized by Hades, the god of the underworld. Um, so it, and that sort of initially starts um, the issues with the house, the house of Atreus, starting with Pelops, and then I think his children are Aestes and Atreus. And then we get um, the real curse, which kind of kicks off a lot of the suffering in this play, which is that Atreus serves up to Thyestes, Thyestes' own children. Um, and Thyestes does eat his own children, although he subsequently, I think, the heads are brought out or parts of recognisable parts of the body are brought out and he, he recognises what's happened. Um, so this it, theme of generations... Yeah. Um, perverting the order in which they're supposed to live mm -hmm. begins very early on in the chain. And particularly within families. So slaughter within families um, has has been happening and is a sort of cyclical, um, it's a cycle of revenge and of bloodshed and killing people within your own family. So Cassandra, um, that Lily was talking about, so Cassandra says that she can actually see the dead bodies um, of these two sons holding their guts um, sitting, These are the children of Thyestes. Sitting, the children of are sitting in front of the palace. Um, so there's kind of already this stain that then is spreading and then will continue to spread in the rest of the trilogy as people continue to take revenge upon each other. So how, how does that work with Aegisthus? Because Aegisthus, being Agamemnon's cousin, is um, Thyestes' son? Yeah. He says that he's um the reason that he has apparently instigated the whole um the whole revenge plot is is in revenge for i guess the murders of his brothers mm. um Thyestes's children by atreus who the father of agamemnon yeah, yeah. so we see Aegisthus's motive there but this does not really i can't see does this act as a motivation for clytemnestra is it more a sort of metaphysical reckoning as concerns that matter um Aeschylus has made his his choices. This myth that, that Emily just um, delineated for us is very complicated and Aeschylus has chosen his moment. So when Emily was talking I was thinking, why is Clytemnestra the focus of this play? Why haven't we heard from Aegisthus? What is so uninteresting about his motivation? It's actually much more kind of canonical, you might right. think, than the especially for a tragedian who seemed to be so, um, for want of a better word, stayed in his mm. um, innovations. I mean, not only is he largely absent, but when he does appear at the end, there is a sense, there is a strong sense of impotency, mm. right? Um, so clearly, Clytemnestra 
has this has a tragic quality or a compelling quality that Aeschylus has chosen to bring out. In the tradition surrounding um, the death of Agamemnon, it's not clear before this point that, that it had to be this way. So Pindar, at a very similar point mm. to Aeschylus, Pindar in his uh, 11th Pythian sort of gives us an either or, you know, he describes what happened to Agamemnon and says, did it happen because she was sad about him sacrificing her daughter Iphigenia, or did it happen because she was um, seduced by Aegisthus, who, who he himself had this revenge motive? So it was, no one had decided what the truth was, but Aeschylus clearly has a version that he prefers. Yes, and I think it's interesting how we weave the character of Cassandra into that version, because it may seem that Cassandra herself is a further motive to murder, you know, waiting 10 years for her husband to find that he's brought home another woman. But I suppose perhaps the Greek context of gender politics might make that a more vexed question than we might consider it. I mean, I think you definitely have a point. Um, most of us would object to uh, our, if our partners came back from a long trip with uh, someone new uh, and expected that to, uh, be, fine. to, to be fine. Uh, but the tradition of war booty uh, is is different and um, it would have been common for people to bring home women although it's interesting that our other sort of returning hero Odysseus at no point makes any attempt to bring anyone home with him in fact Despite he very famously turns up entirely by himself so yeah I think you're right we might give the uh, immediate audience of this play to modern uh, a sensitivity to uh, to the other woman there is certainly a sense in which it his bringing home Cassandra is in some level inappropriate. So is that perhaps the reason, is she killed too because of her being in the wrong place at the wrong time then, more than pure hatred? I, I think it's a combination of, of many things um, and it's it's complex because on the one hand she, she is in the wrong place at the wrong time. It is unlucky for her that she is um, in the bath when Clytemestra, at least near the bath when Clytemestra killed Agamemnon. Um, how she kills them when they're both in the bath together. So yeah, it seems like a kind of crime of passion in an odd way. But it does, although because it was premeditated, at mm. least it seems it's premeditated. It it seems that this probably would have happened. It's impossible to say, but probably would have happened had even if Cassandra had not come come back with Agamemnon. And so, on the one hand, she's in the wrong place at the wrong time, but she also does foretell her own doom. And although we're obviously skipping several years into the future, if you look at a later um, play by Euripides about the Trojan Trojan War um, called Trojan Women, she also foretells what's going to happen to her even as far back as, as Troy has fallen, which suggests that there's some greater fate at play mm. here. And it it doesn't seem that she is at fault in any way. It's just some part, some sort of merciless hand of fate. Um, yes, I suppose it, it just compounds the irony, though, that the primary motivation of the killing seems to be anger at slaughter of an innocent, to, you know, top that off with further slaughter of an innocent. I suppose it's just a commentary on the harshness of fate, really, more than anything else. But... Yeah, I was I was thinking that when um, both of you were talking about the, the many motives for... Um, Clytemnestra's murder of Agamemnon, Zubrith, Iphigenia, potentially um, Cassandra, um, then Aegisthus' own motives, and then you get the, also the curse of the House of Atreus, and I think the the fact that we're denied any sort of clear 
reason for exactly why things have happened and what's driving people. It may well be an interesting um, psychological inquiry into people under pressure, um, emotional pressure, who aren't in control of their their thought process. But it may also just be a very terrifying um, vision of a world where things are determined, but also there are human agents at play and therefore things just spiral out of control. No, I, I think uh, this murder has been 10 years in the making. You very much get the sense that Clytemnestra decided to kill Agamemnon the moment that Iphigenia died. Um, and so Cassandra is an inconvenience. And in fact, in the Agamemnon, Clytemnestra meets Cassandra and says, get off the chariot and come inside. And, and uh, Cassandra says, no, uh, I don't want to. Or rather, she says something that makes no sense. They only think she speaks Trojan for a long time. Um, but Which would it, be a different language. Yeah. It's in the time of the plague, seems to be a different language yes. to what they speak. And she stays in the chariot and Clytemnestra goes inside. And it's left to the chorus to find out why this why Cassandra is so reluctant. And eventually they persuade her to go inside the palace. They don't deceive her. She knows she's going to die, but they sort of talk her into meeting, meeting, meeting what's going to happen. Hand. Yeah, Clytemnestra's not that interested. Although I suppose that maybe we should see the character perhaps as functioning more of a, a guarantor of fate then. Mm. You both of you were discussing earlier the, the power that words seem to have in this play as a predictor, where if you say something, it's more likely to happen. So perhaps articulating a prophecy in this way is, is more than simply stating a fact. In terms of prophecy, this is a trilogy, the Oresteia. Briefly, I think we've mentioned this, but just to confirm, the Agamemnon, the Coephoroi, and then the Eumenides, mm-hmm. I believe. Right. Through. And it's an established trilogy, they would have would have been performed at the same time, unlike what we call the Theban trilogy with uh, all about uh, Oedipus. Yes. It has a common theme, but it's not a trilogy. The Oresteia is a trilogy, and having Cassandra talk about, prophetically about about fate and things like that, prepares us us for the next two plays, um, especially because her her guardian is Apollo and he becomes very important in the Eumenides. So it's uh, it's significant. I suppose the Eumenides is quite an important play for giving a final assessment on Clytemnestra's character because it seems to take the form of a court case, deciding whether or not to acquit her son for killing her. Yeah, um, it's interesting. The latest uh, production of the Oresteia that I saw was at the Almeida and the, the conceit of it was the Orestes throughout the play, is recalling what happened from Iphigenia's death to his killing of Cassandra with a court psychologist who's trying to determine if he is uh, fit to stand trial. So, oh, that's fascinating because I suppose the throughout the play, I believe he's pursued by furies. Is mm-hmm. that a, perhaps a way of looking at madness then? In- yes. I mean, I think they're definitely parallels for sure. And it does become a trial of Clytemnestra instead because they're deciding... Did she behave so heinously? Um, was she so toxic as a mother and in what she did um, that that he deserves not to be put on trial for her death in the first place? So there it's not so much a case of did she behave so wrongly that she deserves to die, but did she behave in so, so um, unnaturally as to drive Orestes to do this? I see. So there's sort of different types of, of her being culpable. 
And, and what's the verdict there? I mean, it's the same as Eumenides, he's cleared. Um, By a decisive victory? Uh, no, I mean, it's a hung jury, and I think Athena does make an appearance, but it's always brilliant, actually, in the play. It's, they've all got wigs on and gowns, and it's, it's quite fun. So, conjecturing here that she's a terrible mother to Orestes, do we see remnants of her sort of mothering skills with other children in other plays in the tradition? Well, I suppose at this in in the Agamemnon, I I guess the focus is mostly on her as a potentially overly loving mother of Iphigenia. But in later plays, so for example, um, in the Electra plays, so Sophocles' Electra and then Euripides' Electra, she's portrayed as a sort of monster mother figure who is um, is now presiding over the palace with her new lover, Aegisthus, and is treating her daughter as essentially a slave um, to serve the household. And there's a lot of tension. I mean, it's not, of course, it, I think it's, it's more complex than just her as a horrific mother. There is um, a lot of psychological tension between um, Electra's own feelings about the murder of her father um, mm. and her relationship with her mother, Clytemnestra. Uh, so there's this weird dichotomy between Clytemnestra's identity as a mother of Iphigenia and then an inadequate mother of um, Electra. And uh, we have three plays that deal with Orestes killing Clytemnestra, and I can't remember which one it is, but in one of them she's told um, that he has died. She's deceived, and she celebrates, and I think she says, you know, you never stop loving your children no matter what, i.e. no matter if they're predicted to, to be your eventual murderer. There's also the scene where she offers, she, she bears her breast yeah. to Orestes to try and prevent him from killing her, which is appealing mm. to, to his identity as a son, to have sympathy on the mother. We probably ought to discuss presentations of her as having a kind of deviant bestial sexuality throughout the tradition, which are quite, quite dominant, especially in that sort of um, interfamilial way. Well, in the Agamemnon, she's described um, at various points as essentially a monster. So she's compared to the monster Scylla, who was a sea monster with um, dogs from the groin below. So she used to tear apart um, ships in the Odyssey. And she's also um, described as a lioness, so a a competitor for the the king, um, Mm. the lion king of Agamemnon. She's described as a lioness figure which would show that she's inappropriately savage for an ancient woman, at least. (laughs) Yes, and I believe that at the very end of the Agamemnon, um, she describes pleasure that she derives from killing Agamemnon and Cassandra in a way that some have postulated is almost sexual. And as well, when she she talks, when she first greets Agamemnon, she talks about the rumours she heard about, about his death at Troy, you know, the type of news that filters home that, that's not true. And she talks about wounds inflicted and and there is a dark kind of appreciation of, of, of the slaughter that she's describing. She talks about men as full of holes and it's unsettling. And I think the verb used there, full of holes, doesn't it? Isn't it a passive verb meaning to penetrate? So what yep. she means is sort of fully penetrated, which obviously suggests a kind of... Um, female sexual transgression in reversing the kind of normal narrative of what happens um, in heterosexual sexual intercourse. No, certainly. I mean, as a woman, 
in a heterosexual relationship in Greece, you would always be the passive. We can see that from the male the male on male relationships because the man penetrating has to be older, otherwise to be penetrated by a younger man would be, you know, disgraceful. As a woman, you're always the penetrated. Mm. That is your role. She's talking about penetrating. I suppose it ties into the claims of kingship as well. Penetration and power very very closely intertwined. Very closely intertwined. So for her to talk about it isn't necessarily weirdly sexual, but it is pointing to a, a subversion of the normal mm. scheme of things. I suppose it's worth highlighting she's, that she's also talking about messages that are ambivalent, that mm. could be true or could not be true. And perhaps what this means in terms of her role as um, the font of communication in this play and the way that... Um, female roles and deception naturally do or don't cohere in the Greek classical tradition. Emily, perhaps you could speak a bit more about that. Um, yeah, so there's, there's kind of two, two ways in which I interpreted that. And the first one, which is just most relevant immediately, is that women um, are traditionally associated with deception. Um, and that's often interpreted as them, um, I guess, maybe the male suspicion of what they're doing when they're indoors where they're meant to be um, potentially weaving so weaving becomes one of the Im- images that's associated with women and with women's deception you get sort of words of weaving wiles sort of spinning together um, complex uh, contrivances and that's particularly interesting because in the play the way one of the symbolic ways in which Clytemnestra overcomes Agamemnon is she, she convinces him to step on some woven tapestries um, and then, of course, she also traps him in some nets before she kills him. And nets come up several times throughout the play, both both in relation to what she's done. The chorus refer to nets. Um, nets are also full of holes, I nets suppose. Nets are full of holes. The... Yeah, I think she actually says that when she's describing how she she sort of imagined that her husband would have been full of holes, I think she describes it as, as full of holes as a net. So they, they do keep coming up and... That's probably connected to her, her gender role um, as a deceitful female. Um, the second way in which I think it's also interesting is this sort of ongoing theme of words and stories and can we, can we trust stories? Are stories real? So, of course, her own words are not real. When she, she tells Agamemnon that she's been sort of crying herself to sleep, she hasn't been able to sleep, she's... Um, a dutiful wife who's welcoming her husband home, but you also have the messenger who does tell broadly the truth, but he also says, I'm not going to tell you about how bad the war was because that's not what will bring you pleasure, that's not what you will, what you want to hear at this time. And as watching a tragedy, perhaps we're thinking precisely what has been fabricated, woven together to give us pleasure. Maybe um, it, it brings us pleasure through pity and fear, but the overwhelming reason to be watching the tragedy is for is for pleasure. And then if we're sort of given, presented with a number of people presenting words in very careful ways to persuade very metatextual people, act, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Um, along with the link that that gives, the link between weaving and narrative, I mean, modernistically speaking, we don't think of painted art on its own as necessarily having a narrative. It often seems like a freeze frame, perhaps, or the picture you might be able to include, say, on on a tapestry or a quilt, might not seem as if it can tell a linear story, necessarily. Do you think that's the case in um, painted narratives of the ancient world, or is there more of a thematization? I mean, it's complicated because a lot of our, for example, a lot of our 
pictures of uh, Agamemnon being killed are on vases, and vases around. You can create more of a, a temporal uh, quality in them. Supposing that it takes time for the eye to travel necessarily. Exactly. All the way around. Well, and also like the a frieze around a temple. Yeah. Um, you literally have to follow it around, and, and there are sometimes uh, the frieze will depict a procession, and the procession is sequential, sequential necessarily narrative yeah. that you have to follow. So, the way where the Greeks had their art means that they had they had more opportunity to to present a temporal narrative. Mm. Mm. See, but you have both temporal narrative, but you also have a kind of, I don't know if atemporal is the way to put it, but you have multiple instances happening within one image, mm. so you can catch this, essentially the whole story in one go. Yeah. So I'm just thinking of examples um, on temple pediments, I think it's Artemis at Corfu, the Temple of Artemis at Corfu, where you have the slaying of the Gorgon, but you also have the horse that leapt out of the Pegasus, who leapt out of the Gorgon's head, and the the child that leapt out of her head there while the head is still on. So you have kind of multiple temporal moments in the story. So I suppose that's sort of narrative by context, isn't it? In that you can't really, you can't actually show all of the events in sequence that happen. So you just show a lot of events together, I suppose, so that people can select it from a tradition that they're familiar with. Yeah, and I think that's um, that could easily be a comment on tragedy because traditionally they, they happen in one day. Um, you mean the the... Uh, events of the play take place yeah. over one day, or the yeah. Of take so one in day the Agamemnon, you have the sun coming up at the end, at the, at the start, um, and frequent mentions of the stage of, of the day throughout. Yeah, there's certainly a, a way in which it's kind of a snapshot. It's why this is a trilogy is so interesting. What what days has Aeschylus chosen? Well, interesting days. <laughs> interesting days. Days where a lot seems to happen. Yeah. And I suppose that's also, we can assume an element of familiarity with various mythological narratives in the audience then. So this isn't their first introduction to the story. Absolutely, no. Um, like like was discussed before, um, it's there in the Odyssey, it's there in Pindar. It's, um, and they'd be familiar with all yeah, these. Yeah, it's on Vardis. It's a very popular myth. So do you sympathise with Clytemnestra? Um, it's a difficult question because the the trope of of wife killing husband is so many times referenced. Um, and in my sort of research for this, rather than reading the Agamemnon or any of the associated plays, I um, I looked up Black Widows, which is a wife who kills her husband. I found this really interesting case that was that created an entire media circus about a woman who killed both of her husbands, and then tried to frame her daughter for it. And I know we've not talked much about Electra, but it seems like a similar case of someone usurping the daughter's relationship with the father yes. with lethal consequences. Um, and it's come back up again. This all happened in 2007, but this woman died in prison over the summer. And again, it's been brought up and people have some refreshed interest in this kind of crime um, so do we sympathise with Clytemnestra? We're seeing it through the lens of a lot of baggage, uh, biblical, pop culture, women killing their husbands. It's as taboo now as it was then, but with many different connotations. So do I sympathise with her? Yes, because I think if I strip away that kind of internalised misogyny, fear of, of these kind of black widow devious types, then 
what I see is a mother who was ruined by the death of her daughter at the hands of her husband. And we talked about whether she's a good mother or not. How can you be a good mother when you let your husband kill your daughter? And I'm not saying that in a in a pejorative way. What I mean is, how do you continue to mother after that? How can you take upon the role of a good mother when your husband has killed your child? And that has been sanctioned. And when she lies to him, she says, well, uh, I'm not crying with joy because you're back, because all my tears are exhausted. She's wanting to imply that exhausted over worry for him and whereas actually there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that she has been crying for 10 years but not for him so yes I do have sympathy for for Clytemnestra. Wow I mean I suppose just to confirm the gendered element of these black widow figures I mean the OJ Simpson trial is the Mm. obvious other place to look at spouse killings which I mean, a recent documentary made it very, very clear that it's likely that he did it. Obviously, I shouldn't speculate, um, given that theoretically justice has been served. He absolutely did it. He, he certainly beat women, and it takes a, a misplaced blow to beat a woman to death. So um, he as good as did it if he didn't do it. I think one of the most uncomfortable things that the Agamemnon makes us con- confront is... Um, our views for typical behaviour for genders and the way that acting atypically um, constitutes being a frightening person. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think maybe you could comment on that? For um, an ancient audience, particularly an ancient audience probably mostly composed of men, um, they would to see a woman um, taking charge, speaking out, speaking her mind, and her exaltation speech at the end when she describes the sort of joy with which. Um, she killed her husband, uh, combined with her killing of her husband, would have been particularly terrifying. Um, so do you have sympathy for Clytemnestra? I was just reflecting on this because I think I I, I sympathise with some of her motives. So the fact that she, she has obviously experienced this sorrow over um, Iphigenia, her daughter, but I think, I think I don't feel much sympathy for her characterisation in that play. I, I don't feel that there's much emphasis on her sorrow, on the story of Iphigenia within the play. I think my sympathy comes for her much more in other plays, for example, in Iphigenia at Aulis, which is a later play by Euripides, essentially about that moment where Agamemnon decides to kill Iphigenia. And I think in that where where Euripides is exploring the trauma that Agamemnon feels in making that decision and then the impact that has on Clytemnestra and on and on his daughter, I feel my sympathy comes through much more for Clytemnestra in that play. Whereas in, in the Agamemnon, she is incredibly powerful, dominant, exultant in the moment of the killing. Um, she's sort of drenched in blood and pleased with that. So do you think the fact that you feel more sympathy for Euripides, Clytemnestra figure, says anything about the traditional roles we give to those two tragedians and, you know, one perhaps being a little more progressive than the other? I actually probably wouldn't put it like that. So I think my sympathy in, in Euripides, Virginia Taulis, is because he is focusing on a very different moment in the story and he's chosen to kind of unpack a lot of different emotions. I also have sympathy in that play for Agamemnon. 
um, anti-fragile I have sympathy for all of them essentially the reason that I feel differently is because it's it's looking at a, a different set of a different drama and a different moment a different set of alternatives um, I'd actually disagree with the view that Aeschylus was not innovative he's credited with introducing the second actor what does that mean there are only two actors on stage all the chorus are also on stage they're not called actors they're called the chorus you also might have had a number of voiceless parts and that might be what's particularly exciting about the, the War of Cassandra, for example, because in the Oris Diary we actually have three actors. We have Cassandra on stage at the same time as Clytemestra and at the same time as Agamemnon. And potentially for a lot of the audience, it's hard to know, we have to speculate because we've lost a lot of plays, but potentially for the audience that would have been a totally astounding moment where Cassandra actually speaks up and gives her prophecy because they may well have thought she was another voiceless actor um, because Aeschylus tended to only use two. So would the same actors rotate parts then if there was more than two characters in the play? Yeah, exactly. So so you can sometimes reconstruct who would have played um, whom because you can study who must be on stage at a particular time. Someone exits, it's probably because they've gone to change their mask, change their costume. Mm. You know, that's just one example actually of how this play is. The whole Oristar is incredibly innovative. Um, we only have seven, maybe only six plays that we think are by Aeschylus and... So for three of them to be incredibly innovative, I think, is actually very yeah. striking. Um, you also have a very unusual chorus in the humanities. So the chorus are actually kind of actively driving the drama. They're, they're a chorus of furies chasing Orestes. We've already talked about the very uh, fact that he's chosen to look at the myth from a different perspective. So he's taken the identity of Clytemnestra, who was involved to a certain extent in killing Agamemnon and given her potentially a much larger role than she'd had before. The chorus in, in the Agamemnon appeared to spend most of their time actually giving backstories. Do you, do you think that's the case or would you say they also have action driving force in this play? They do serve almost like a, an artwork at moments. They kind of, as you know, we were talking about how you kind of get this explosion of different time points in art and they also reflect on what's happened. They reflect what's going to happen. They talk of the prophecy, things that were going to happen in the past. They kind of bring a lot of moments together in their odes. But I suppose you do have two, two particularly interesting moments where they take on more of an acting role. And one is when they debate whether to sort of burst in and prevent Clytemnestra from killing Agamemnon. That I think there's a, there is a lot of debate over whether they would have said all the lines or whether the chorus would have actually split into a number of voices at that point because the, the script seems to suggest there's different views coming through in the chorus. Um, but then later also when Clytemnestra comes out and I guess this has come out, the chorus seems to be trying to assert some authority and although they in the end don't seem to succeed in in, um, in, in asserting any authority and are it appears cowed by Agissus um, they do seem to be trying to push back against the evidence which I think is quite interesting. One thing that interests me about the chorus in this play is that they seem to be just old men which provides quite a strong foil for a character like Clytemnestra. Well all the young men are dead or at war it is a necessity. It's something that they address themselves. They say, well, our bodies were too weak to go to war, but with the power of song that, that defies age, we will be your chorus today. And again, I think this feeds into the themes of war and loss and lost generations and papering over 
the gap that should be filled by the most productive and and vital members of society because because they've been lost in war and although war was a, a, a Greek reality I don't think they ever stop reflecting on on the the heavy burden that it that it leaves behind for, for the people at home. So what does that say about Aegisthus that he's still there? He is presented as a sort of emasculated, mm. like, maybe better effeminate character. Um, I know he comes on at the end and sort of claims that he's masterminded the whole thing. He does seem to take kind of um, tyrannical control, essentially, of the chorus and of the state. But he does come across in the myth as a sort of effeminate character, which would fit with the idea that he'd remained home, not gone to fight. And um, still in the play, it's not as if he earns the right to say, mm-hmm. um, to claim that tyranny. He doesn't come across as a forceful, he doesn't come, ac- come up earlier in the play. Yeah. I mean, the subject of his citizenship is disputed because he I think he had to leave after what happened to his father and brothers and was raised elsewhere so whether or not he would have been part of a draft if he had a clear allegiance to any particular country for whom he would fight it's difficult he seems to be like sort of one of the men left behind by not having a clear identity. The course's role as old men is um it's less of a sort of deep-seated reason but it's interesting as well because um they have they have often been seen to be kind of intermediaries, to be somewhere kind of between actors and audience, sometimes they seem to view events themselves, but then they participate in the events, they sing, so they're part of this kind of alternate lyric, performative um, tradition, but then they're also, as we were saying, sometimes they stand up and they act and they participate in the drama as well. And so for them to be old men, it fits within a pattern of, old men, women, just kind of marginal characters that come up as the chorus in, um, in other plays. I mean, if we, we were talking about the Persians as well. Mm-hmm. They are the old men. Again, they're the old men that have been left behind. They're the ones that didn't go to war. But you get, in the same way, a woman on, a woman on stage and a lot of old men in the chorus. And so you have a lot of kind of interesting other characters um, presented before an audience of probably a lot of young men, um, a lot of warriors, 